I have this friend and he's a pastor's kid and I'm technically a pastor's kid or, you know, a speaker's writer's kid. And there's kind of this, uh, you know, trope about pastor's kids. And, and he said, and, and my friend, he said he was the ideal pastor's kid. And I was not, I was the one who was constantly getting in trouble, getting caught with girls, um, getting, uh, calling my parents from, uh, parties. I was, <laughs> I had the cops show up to my house a couple times. Uh, I was getting in car wrecks. And so I, rebellion for me, and it wasn't just out of wanting to be, as I look back now, and I think then I would have said I just wanted to be, you know, a cool kid. But for me, it was really testing out this entire philosophy that I'd been given. Is this real? Do I really want this? And I wanted to test out being the king of my own life because for so long I've been told to not be. How do you forgive when the wound is still open? How do you leave a legacy of redemption? instead of dysfunction? How do you trust God when your deepest fears are realized? Join me, Sarah May, along with some wise mentors along the way as we explore these and other messy heart topics and the strategies we can use to seek healing in the pain and restoration in the ruins. Welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Hey friends, today on the podcast, I'm talking with Nathan Clarkson, who is an actor, best-selling author, filmmaker, mental illness struggler, and real-life friend of mine. He's also the son of Sally Clarkson, who is not only a friend and mentor of mine, but we co-wrote the book, Desperate, Hope for the Mom Who Needs to Breathe. I asked Nathan to come on the show because I love how willing he is to talk about his mental illnesses, which include depression, anxiety, OCD, ODD, ADHD, and other learning disabilities, which he shares in depth about in his memoir, Different. Today we're going to talk about how Nathan has seen God in his differences, but we're also going to talk about something that Nathan has been thinking a lot about lately, something in fact that he's currently writing a book on, and that is the struggle that some men have with acknowledging and facing their failures, frailty, and brokenness. Before we get into our conversation, here's just a little bit more about Nathan. He has appeared in national commercials, TV shows, and major feature films. He starred in the hit faith-based feature film, Confessions of a Prodigal Son, which he also wrote and produced in conjunction with his production company, Lightning Dark. Nathan lives in New York City, but can often be found in Los Angeles, Colorado Springs, or adventuring around the country and world speaking and sharing his passion for helping people better know their creator and the story he has for them to tell. Now, before we jump in, I just have one quick note for you all, and that is that the volume you're going to hear is going to be a little wonky, and that's because I forgot to plug in my microphone. And so the first half of this podcast interview, sadly, is going to sound loud and weird and not super smooth, and I'm so sorry for that. Uh, But later on, the second half will sound much better. So a little grace, please, and enjoy the podcast. Let's jump in. Nathan, welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Sarah May. It's good to be here. I know. I'm so excited that you're here. I think it's really fun that we're in real life friends, although not like we've hung out a ton, but we know each other. So that's cool. Absolutely. Yes. All right. Well, Nathan, I really want to start. People know your bio. People know what I've told them about you, but uh, I want you to tell us a little bit about you. So let's start off with where are you living right now and what project are you currently working on? Yeah, well, that's kind of a funny question because I'm typically always living somewhere new and I'm always working on multiple projects at one time. But 
Currently, I am living in New York City. Um, I've bounced back and forth between Los Angeles and New York City for the uh, about 10 or 11 years now, which makes me feel very old because I still feel like I'm 19 in my head. But um, I'm living in New York City, and I'm working on a few projects. Um, uh, I, I act, I filmmake, and I write. Um, the most recent project I just put out is a modern retelling film of um, the Good Samaritan story called The Unlikely Good Samaritan, um, now on Amazon Prime. Um, and uh, the book I'm currently working on is called Good Man. And um, essentially, it's a very personal, intimate look into my journey into discovering um, what a good man looks like, what that is, um, kind of deciphering all these different stereotypes of men in culture and who God actually created me to be as a quote unquote good man. So that's kind of what I'm right in the middle of working on. Um, and it comes out early next year and I'm really excited. Oh, that is so cool. We'll make sure we get a link to that or at least the name of it and where people can find you and follow you. Um, what is your, uh, URL? Is it nathanclarkson.com? It's nathanclarkson.me, M-E. Someone stole the com, and I'm still waiting for him to give it up. <laughs> All right. Yes. Well, that can happen. Uh, somebody had sarahmay.com years ago, and I snatched it up. Oh, smart. Mm-hmm. Um, Nathan, can I ask, how old are you? I am 30 years old. Just entered my 30s a couple months ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. You- All right. Well, I uh, want to know one other quick thing before I ask you how you came to know the Lord, because I do want to know that. And you can just give a quick version of that. But first, what is your Enneagram? Are you into that? What's your Enneagram? (laughs) I am. I'm into all things personality psychology, and I have lots and lots of opinions on Enneagram um, and MBTI. So I haven't studied. I'm an ENTP on uh, Myers-Briggs, and I haven't studied as much into Enneagram. And I seem to keep on coming at different things. But what comes up regularly is seven wing eight. That's what I hear and find most commonly. Oh, very interesting. What are you? I, uh, I think I'm a four wing three. We're like the emotional roller coasters of the Enneagram. <laughs> um, very creative. <laughs> I would have pegged you as a four. The, really? See, the sevens are just non-emotional, what I hear, but they're very driven or something like that. I'm, I'm really literate when it comes to this, but I'm trying to learn more because many people in my life are telling me how valuable it is for them. Yeah. And I don't know. I just feel like as a podcast host, I'm like obligated to ask people their Enneagram, but you're the first one. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, if you get a chance, listen to Annie Downs podcast. That sounds fun. She has a whole Enneagram summer and she goes over every single type and it's really fun and really good. Okay. So we'll get, we'll get into it here. So I love to ask people how they came to know the Lord. Like, when did Jesus become real to you personally? Because I know you were raised in a Christian family. So hit me with your story. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's a good um, a, a good way to put it. Because technically, I think um, as far back as, remem- as I can remember, believing in God wasn't the issue for me. I was raised in a Christian family. My mom, who you might know, um, is... Uh, <laughs> writer and speaker. My dad was a minister. And so God was very real in our everyday life. Um, so belief wasn't the issue for me, but um, following Jesus was a completely different story. And I think since I was little, I always had this dream of being a good man, of you know, being like the man I would read in the Bible, especially David. I really connected with David mm. um, from an early age. Um, I saw a lot of the out of the box, uh, larger than life 
aspects of him that I connected to, but I also saw a lot of the uh, his uh, proclivities for failure and uh, his um, uh, weaker parts uh, from a young age as well in myself, his anger, his rashness, his... Um, uh, his rebellion. And so both of these things kind of played parts in my life um, as I was growing into the man I am now. And so it's hard to say, you know, a lot of people have this moment um, and they can point to that moment. And they say, that is when I met Jesus. And I'm, I've always been kind of jealous of that because I always wanted to have that moment. But for me, it's a a 30 years of moments of, and it's kind of an everyday decision. Am I going to wake up and follow Jesus? And there have been years when I wake up and I hear Jesus and I'm looking at him and he says, follow me. And I'm say, and I look at him and say, no, I'm not going to today. And that will be a year long, um, uh, uh, exodus, uh, ignoring of God's voice in my life. And then I'll find myself in a place, um, obviously, which happens a lot in life where I, I need him and he's right there again. And, um, but so it, it's hard to point back to a moment, but I, if I'd have to point to a time in my life, um, it would be uh, right in the middle of high school. Um, it was when my um, mental illnesses was, were really spiking in ways I never had before. It was when my rebellion was really showing itself in ways it never had before. And it was when I had a lot of anger and angst. And um, there was this uh, man at the church I was attending, and he decided to put together a small group um, uh, of men and, and disciple them. He's just a few years older than uh, me at the time. He's 22, I think. Um, but he had us in his basement and he would uh, talk to us and, and listen to us and um, disciple us in this very loving Jesus-like way. And I can remember um, there being a moment in which I felt so heard and felt so seen, uh, a, a moment being the season by him. And I was allowed to exercise all these thoughts and doubts and, um, uh, and, uh, things I was struggling with in a, in a verbal way in a safe place. And that gave me this model, um, for, uh, for God and how he relates to us. He listens to us, he hears us. And it was kind of in that group of guys that I really decided, I think I'm going to, um, attempt to follow Jesus with my life. I'm going to use my life, um, for God, not just to use him as an, uh, auxiliary, you know, uh, thing to have along, but I want this to be my life. When I saw that exemplified for me in conjunction with um, my family who I'd seen follow God um, their entire lives. It was the first time kind of outside of my family that I'd seen um, the beauty of following Jesus and how um, graceful and loving in the midst of my teenage rebellion it could be and how much uh, hope um, it brought to my future at that time. Nathan, what did rebellion look like for you? I'm just curious. Yeah, you know, I, I have this friend, and he's a pastor's kid, and I'm technically a pastor's kid, or, you know, a speaker's, writer's kid, and there's kind of this... Um, uh, you know, trope about pastor's kids. And, and he said, and, and my friend, he said he was the ideal pastor's kid. And I was not, I was the one who was constantly getting in trouble, getting caught with girls, um, getting, uh, calling my parents from, uh, parties. I was, um, <laughs> I had the cops show up to my house a couple times. Uh, I was getting in car wrecks and, and race. So I, rebellion for me, and it wasn't just out of wanting to be, as I look back now, and I think then I would decide I just wanted to be, you know, a cool kid. But for me, it was really testing, um, out this entire uh, philosophy that I'd been given. Is this real? Do I really want this? And I wanted to test out being the king of my own life because for so long I'd been told to not be. And it was something that um, I had to kind of push those bounds, and I still do, unfortunately. Um, but uh, thank God for grace. And um, But yeah, it was a rebellion for me was uh, wanting to be king of my own life in reaction to being told that um, someone else was. 
if that makes sense. Uh, that makes complete sense. I have so many questions I want to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> Fire away. Okay. Well, let's 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 start here. And uh, I, you talk a lot about the power of stories through your writing, through your own storytelling, with making writing and and being in movies. Why do you like stories so much? Where did that Where did that come from? Yeah, stories are. Um powerful. And as I've studied the art of story more in all of its different mediums, I find how um, woven into the human makeup stories are. They're not just things you can like or not like. Humans are stories and intrinsically made to connect with um, stories. You know, there, it's not an accident. I don't think that uh, the Hollywood industry is so big and it's across every, you know, across every state, every uh, microculture. It's not an accident that if you look back thousands of years across every culture, there are stories and that's the way they passed on their morality, their um, inspiration, their history. Um, and I don't think it's an accident that God gave us his truth in the word and scripture through stories. And I don't think it's an accident that Jesus in fact, most of the time when he was teaching, his words were stories. Um, so I think that's a very intentional thing because I think Jesus knew that humans are story creatures. I think he knew that um, we are intrinsically wired to connect with stories. So I have since I was a kid. You know, I remember um, my mom just reading out loud to me and these stories coming alive in my mind. And, and it wasn't just something that would stop when I close a book. These stories lived in my heart and my imagination. I wanted to be the characters in these stories. I mean, the first time I saw Lord of the Rings and I talk about this in my new book, I it ignited something in me and I saw this figure of who I wanted to be. It wasn't just a movie that ended and it was fun. It was something for me that uh, inspired and, and lit something in me and gave me a vision for who I wanted to be and a story I wanted to live. And the further I went along and grew up, I realized that my life was a story and that my choices were part of telling that story. And I had to ask myself what kind of story I wanted to tell, what kind of story were my choices making for me. And so when it came time to decide what to do with my life, I'd been playing pretend since I was a kid, playing dress up, and I just decided I didn't want to stop. And that's what led me to be an actor. But I think there's something deeply ingrained in humanity that is made to respond to stories. So that's why I've kind of dedicated my life to telling them in one medium or the other. Mm, I love that. And of course, now you are a storyteller in Hollywood. Well, New York City, but Hollywood also. What is it like to be a Christian in Hollywood? And what is it like, like just personally? And then what is it like to be a Christian storyteller in Hollywood? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny. I hear a lot of um, people in my, in I guess, the same position of being Christians in Hollywood. And and we have different takes on it. I think I might have a little bit different take. For me, um, being a man of faith in Hollywood um, is not a hard thing. It's, it's the one thing that I cling to that actually keeps me going and keeps me centered in the storm that is this crazy world that I find myself in. Um, the place that I find um, I wrestle with most in this is um, whether acting or writing or um, producing films, it's wrestling with how do I tell stories um, that make the world a better place, that teach truth, that inspire goodness, that... Uh, ultimately reveal God in some um, dim reflection. And so that's what I wrestle with the most is if you have the power to tell stories and all of a sudden you have this responsibility to tell stories um, that are good because stories are effective and they can be effective for good um, or for destructive uh, means. And so for me, I, I spend a lot of time stressing about 
are the stories I'm acting in or the stories I'm telling, are these going to be stories that help the world um, that would help me in a place or are these going to be stories that don't? And so I spend a lot of time struggling with um, the kind of stories I want to tell. Uh, and there's a lot of self-doubt that goes into that. At some point, you just have to step forward and by faith and hope that uh, there's some mustard seed of goodness uh, in the stories you're going to tell. But I think that's the biggest thing for me is it, in Hollywood, um, God is my... Uh, I, don't, I don't say this in a cheesy way. He's really the only way that keeps me going. It's such a stressful and chaotic and um, very sad place. Um, and it, it's he's the one light in my life that has kept me in this place. Um, but as far as my stress, it really comes from wanting to um, tell the stories that genuinely affect people for good. There must be such a tension there because on one hand, this is your job. And so you need to get roles, right? Like in, in commercials, movies, shows, and absolutely. And then on the other hand, like you're trying to, um, make sure that you're doing things, you know, with integrity or how are people treating people on movie sets and how do you wrestle that tension? Yeah, it's a tough one. And I, and I'll be the first one to say I have not done it perfectly. So if you see me in a role and you're like, uh, I don't like that, then, uh, I probably am with you. Um, but it, it's an ongoing conversation I'm having with God and it's, um, it's a tough one because, um, you know, and, and I will say as a guy, I think it's much tougher on women to be completely honest. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not asked daily to, um, disrobe and to use my sexuality, my body, um, to get ahead in the world. But there are things even for, uh, especially a lot of times for men as well, um, whether it's taking part in, uh, something that's uh, violent or demeaning or misogynistic or just takes light of very serious things. Um, so I always try to weigh more than just the content, you know, does I have a cuss word or does I have violence? I always try to weigh what does the overall message of this do and what will someone who's lost and hurting when they watch this feel afterwards. And so uh, those are, that's kind of how I, I, I try to uh, approach choosing the projects I'm a part of. Um, but it, it, it is it is a tension because, um, of course, you want to have a career. But I think at the end of it, if you if you love stories, if that's why you're there, if you love revealing truth in this beautiful way, then it will give you more of a guidepost to the projects and things you want to be a part of. And I'm lucky enough to have been a part of some really, really good ones. Well, I like what you said. What will people feel afterwards? And I imagine that you're not just talking about the viewer, but also the people who are in those roles. I have heard you, uh, or rather read, comments that you've made about, for example, Game of Thrones. I'm not picking on it. I'm just making an example. Um, it's, it's fascinating to watch the debates about you know, Christians who will or will not watch it. I don't personally watch it because of all of the nudity and sex that I've heard is in it. Um, but you said something interesting once, um, or you made a comment somewhere that said, the, the reason that, and I don't know if you watch or not, but the reason that I think you don't or that it bothered you was because there were real women, these actresses who are having to do these degrading acts. And that's real. Is that what, is that, correct me if I'm wrong. Is that what you had said? Yeah, it's, you know, and uh, I'm with you. I'd, I have no interest in policing anyone else's. I think everyone has to live by their own, um, their conscience and what they think. But for me, it's not something I watch, um, as well as there are a good amount of other shows. Um, not because I hate them or think I, I wouldn't enjoy them. I love swords, dragons, and good storytelling. So I have no idea, I have no doubt that I, I would um, enjoy the show. But for me, I think sometimes in all the philosophical talk about, well, can we do this and can we do that? And what about this? On both sides, 
um, whether you're you're arguing for or against it, you're still seeing um, the people involved in it as just tools um, for your philosophy. And I feel very often that the people involved in the actual creation of this are forgotten. Um, so people, you know, who don't think you should watch will say, you know, it causes me to to lust or to to do something bad or to. Uh, and then on the other side, it's well, but it's good art. And the but both sides ignore that these are people and these are humans and these are real um, women and men who are living this out and who are not just tools or um, objects for entertainment, but are real feeling people with hopes and dreams and sadness and brokenness that has been ignored in this discussion. I, I remember um, I was on set. I, I got. I booked a role and it was the biggest role I'd ever booked. And it was on a very big movie with an Oscar winning director. Um, don't worry, it got cut um, by scene, but it was a big deal at the time, just a few lines. Um, but I was going to get to work on this uh, eventually Oscar nominated movie. And I showed up to set so excited. I met this young woman at breakfast before we were all going to set. And she was uh, light and chipper and excited because she had booked a role too. Um, she's an actress and she was excited. And you can see in her eyes this, um, uh, in excitement and, uh, for what was coming up. And, and so I went and shot my scene and she went and shot her scene in a different, um, soundstage. And we met back up for lunch. And I remember she's in a bathrobe and she wouldn't look me in the eye. She would barely talk and she was downtrodden. And I, and I talked to one of the other actors and I said, is she okay? And he said, she just did a very explicit scene with the lead actor. Um, and I know that's very anecdotal and it doesn't prove anything, but for me, I saw, um, a real, uh, something that affected her, that she was used for a prop. She was used for quote unquote art, um, without any regard for her own, um, safety, her own, um, value, her own sacredness of her and her body. It was being used, um, for something else. And I hate in any context when people are used and seen as anything other than, um, image bearers of God and people who are worthy of value. Um, so it, it's an interesting, thing for me and it's hard to wade those waters and 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 say so i try not to say too definitively on either side but i do try to keep in my mind this the center of it um uh the people and the hearts that are affected by um the creation of whatever it is people are making yeah i've thought about that ever since you made that comment and it just it's really it's really sad um let's transition a little bit one of the things I know that um, my listeners are very curious about, they ask about, you know, they want to hear people who are struggling with, they want to know they're not alone with people who are struggling with depression, anxiety, you know, different mental illnesses. Mm. Um, and I get a lot of requests to talk about that. And so in your book, Different, um, you give us a glimpse into what it's like to experience some mental illness. And I'm wondering if you would share with us a little bit about those struggles um, and what you've learned through them and how you've seen God in the midst of them. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a funny thing. Um, when I first started sharing about the mental illness I'd grown up with, I thought it would be um, something a couple people would enjoy or, or maybe connect to, but ultimately it would... Um, kind of fade and it would just be a, a small part of um, what I did. You know, isn't that funny? We always have this idea of what we're going to do and God ends up using the things we don't even think about. But that's kind of the, the point of the book. It's a, it's a memoir that my mother and I wrote and it's about um, me as a kid and some glimpses of me as an adult um, who is dealing with mental illness, with learning disabilities and with just being quote unquote 
different as a whole. I was always this out-of-the-box kid where other kids could sit still and listen to lessons. I'd be the one tapping my finger or getting in debates or making jokes with my friends when other kids um, wouldn't get in trouble. I was constantly getting in trouble with teachers and my parents, my family for talking back, for acting out. Um, And then when other kids could just be normal, I was struggling with this deep anxiety and OCD where I was taking um, 10, 12, 15 showers a day, washing my hands until they bled, unable to sleep to the point at one, um, a couple points in my um, uh, teenagehood, I uh, contemplated suicide because I couldn't take the thoughts. And I think a lot of people think about OCD and anxiety and depression in very um, stereotypical terms, but don't understand the real hell that the people who are experiencing them are living in. Um, so, you know, as a kid who's trying to figure out the world and who he is um, with a family who has a lot of eyes on them, uh, I had these thoughts that I couldn't control. I had, you know, my, my mind wouldn't turn off and I had no control over my um, my brain and, and, um, and these compulsions and obsessions that I would have uh, 99% of the day. And even now, um, it's something I still am working through daily. It's still something I bring up in prayer. It's still something I have to utilize those tools um, that I keep on learning um, to get through. So it's an invisible battle, which can make it very lonely. Um, Because a lot of people look at you and they don't see a broken leg. They don't see a cut. um, And you tell them that you're in pain and that you're hurting and you're struggling but they can't see it. We're such a visual people. Um, so a lot of times mental illness um, never gets diagnosed, never gets help, uh, and never um, has the ability to heal and to, um, and these kids never have the ability to learn how to cope with these things and live well. I just, I'm really curious, like when you say that you were bombarded constantly with thoughts, like to the point that you wanted to, or you considered suicide, um, what, like, what is that? Talk to us about what that's like for somebody who doesn't know. Like, when you're saying all these thoughts are going through your mind, what are you, like, what kind of thoughts are we talking about here? Absolutely. Well, there's different kinds, and I've experienced every single kind. There's, um, uh, there's the kind of obsessions that you get very violent or overtly sexual images in your mind, and you can't get them out no matter what you do, and they're terrible, and you don't want them. There's no pleasure in them, um, but they keep on showing up in your mind over and over and over again and you feel dirty and contaminated and you don't want to be around people and for a social kid like me that was terrible there's a kind that you feel like germs are crawling over your body no matter how many times people tell you you're clean you just washed your hand it doesn't matter Uh, in your mind your mind is telling you you're dirty you're going to get other people dirty you're contaminating yourself and others because thoughts yeah, and, and they don't stop. And uh, most people can say, okay, that's a silly thought and move on. But with uh, a mind with OCD or anxiety, you can't. They they repeat themselves over and over and over again until you find some way to cope with this. And that's what OCD looks like on the outside. It, it's, it's a person in constant turmoil and pain trying to cope with these thoughts that won't stop. And are these thoughts coming from, like when you talk about violence, for example, or sexual images, like are these things you see or that the mind just conjures up no it's it's amazing the mind um i mean they can be if it's something in a movie but very often these are just um uh your your imagination unleashed to the most terrible extent um going wild and shoving these terrible things um in your mind And and it always almost always tends to attack things and people you love as well and that is just the most shameful most horrible thing to deal with, especially as a a young person who has no idea what to do with this. And you feel guilt and shame for something you have almost no, you have zero choice in um, experiencing, but it's a very lonely and um, 
dark experience. And I think a lot of people don't understand just because it's invisible. It doesn't mean it doesn't really affect people deeply. Yeah. And how did you finally, because you said there's so much guilt and shame with it, I think a lot of men, and we're going to talk about this, um, are maybe afraid or scared to look at these things, Mm -hmm. um, frailty, failures, you know, vulnerability, uh, weakness, whatever. How did you, why did you finally decide to face it? Absolutely. You know, it's, uh, I, I am incredibly lucky to have an intuitive, um, parents, an intuitive mother who knew what I was going through and who prodded and opened me up. So I think on one hand, it's so important to have people in relationships around you who aren't passive with you, but intentionally prod, as long as you've opened up, um, that avenue and allowance for that in the relationship. Um, but intentionally dig and search, uh, to know you and what's going on. And it was through that, that I could kind of put words to these things that was going, these things that were going on. And eventually, um, one of the biggest, most life-changing things I've ever done. And I continue to this day was, um, get counseling. It was sit, go to a little office. I know it sounds silly. I know it sounds, and there's so many, um, stereotypes around, especially for men. And when, when I tell people that I, uh, I get counseling, they always go, they always say, for themselves, oh, I can never do that. I'll wait till I have something wrong. And, and it's my firm belief that if you're a human, there's something, we live in a broken world that's going to affect you in one way or the other. And counseling is so valuable. But for me, a huge conduit to healing and to learning how to cope with these things was having this safe um, place to pour my heart out, uh, to work through them verbally with someone else who could give me um, insightful advice. But I, I think honestly, most importantly, just to have someone to talk to candidly who had no other agenda, but to hear me, um, and to step into my pain with me, even if it was just an hour a week, um, and help me work through this. And it is a, it's a fun, funnily enough, it's communal, it's experience. You know, it was, um, I think how God designed us. We're not meant to bear these burdens on our own. We're meant to share these with somebody. And in an isolated world, um, sometimes the best way we can find that is in a counselor, in a counseling room, someone who is there specifically to hear you and you finally have a place to open up and pour your heart out in all of its mess and ugliness without judgment. Um, so that was really the beginning to um, healing, understanding myself, accepting myself and learning how to live life well that I, that I experienced. Yeah. And that's interesting because it isn't so much that you're going to get over this, right? Like this isn't necessarily something that's going to go away on this earth, but you're learning how to cope and live with it. And, and, and even, I, I guess, believe that God is good in it, even if you're not healed from it on this earth. Mm. Yeah, that's been a big thing for me. I've, I've had people pray over me that my mental illness would leave, and it, and it didn't. And as a teenager, I felt, am I, do I have a lack of faith? Is there something wrong with me? Do I not love God enough? And you can feel those things. But the more I learn about God and the more I read His Scripture and the stories in it, I keep on discovering God as a God of process. Yes, God has the power to snap His fingers and do things, but I, I notice over and over again He loves using process. He loves Mm. even when we're building our bodies, we don't get strong. The second we decide to go to the gym, we get strong two years after we've been investing and strengthening these muscles and going regularly. And so for me, I've noticed that God is a God of process, but also another huge thing is I realize that God is in, in it during the process. He's with you during the process. And it funnily enough, as much as I hate um, the things I've had to experience through mental illness and through um, all, all these other painful things in my life, I've noticed that um, 
it's it's made me closer to God because I've had to go to him. Mm. When the times in which I don't have things that are broken and hurting, I I feel like I don't need him. But when I say, when I'm at this place where I say, I, I need you, I need um, you here, um, I've noticed that he always is. And it's there that he uses these things to draw close to us and to comfort us and to be with us. So I wish I could snap my fingers for me and every other kid and person who has mental illness. But what I would say in encouragement is you're not alone mm-hmm. in this process of um, pain. Your creator is with you. He's walking with you. He wants to comfort you and he wants to draw you near in this process. And the process isn't static. It does get better. We learn how to be stronger and build those muscles and fight those thoughts and learn the tools. It takes a long time, but you're not walking that path alone. Mm, That's so good. That's so good. And I love how you also talked about um, talking with a counselor (laughs) and just being Mm. honest about these things because... One of the things that I am always telling women is tell your secrets with safe people. Tell the things that, right, the wounds, the histories, the sin, the things that were sinned against you, whatever it is, if there's a block there and you've not dealt with it or you haven't wanted to look at it, it's it's there. It's not going away just because you're not facing it. It's just going to come out in other ways that are usually pretty damaging. I heard someone say that healing and redemption are for the ones who admit they need it. And so once you take that step and say, I need that, um, you can start this healing. And so as I, over the years as I've learned to cope, I've become um, better at handling these issues, even though they're always present and they're always something that I can use to bring me close to God. They're things I get stronger in, which is I want to give hope to start that process, um, to start that process of admitting that we need help uh, to, like you said, telling your secrets to a, to someone who's trustworthy, um, to opening up and begin that healing process um, and, and admitting you need it. So um, for me, it, it has and does affect my life, but I spent so many years investing in the healing process and the redemption process with God, with counselors, with my family, um, with medication when needed, with um, reading and studying um, that I I worked to where I could get to a place um, where I would be able to live healthily in a relationship. And sometimes it's knowing what season you're in. Are you in a healing season where God wants to work on you? Um, or have you done a lot of work where you feel like uh, you are able to be in a healthy relationship? And there's no shame in either one. Um, but that's not to say that it goes away because these have affected my relationships. And you in in relationships, you want to find someone who even they want you at your best, but even when you're at your worst, I hate to be cliche here, um, but even when you are at your worst, they will love you through that. They've accepted, okay, this is what his worst looks like. I'm going to love this part of him too. It's loving the entire person. So I think even with these big issues, um, I've looked for um, people, uh, both romantically and um, just friendships, who will say, I want Nathan at his best, but when he's really struggling and having a bad day and I can tell that he's giving into his obsessions and his depression, um, I'm still going to love him Mm. and support him. So I think it's a twofold. Knowing when might be the best time for you to enter a relationship, um, especially romantically, and knowing um, when is a good time with friends to heal and to grow and to learn and to focus on yourself. But I, yeah, but finding people who support you in that. That's so good. And that's how you really know you're loved, right? Because if we don't ever open up and we aren't ever, ever actually vulnerable and, and sharing our the deepest things that are, you know, we think are shameful or gross or scary or sinful or whatever, how will we ever know that we're really loved when we could be loved even though mm. 
somebody knows those things, that's really being loved, isn't it? Brendan Manning said, God loves us um, as we are, not as we should be. And I always loved that. Yes. I love Brendan mm. Manning. Um, okay. So uh, why is it, Nathan, and I know that this is one of the reasons you're writing your book, Good Man, and you've, you've this is something you sound passionate about right now. Uh, why is it that that men struggle so much with being vulnerable, with talking to another man, with facing like they, their failures and frailty and brokenness, Mm. getting help. Like that is like a mountain. They're just so many men are unwilling to climb. What's up with that? I think this is a really, I think this a lot of nuanced answers to this question and a lot of, um, uh, different factors at play. And I'm not answering as an authority on psychology or men's brains, but just as, as a man who has struggled with them, with this himself. Um, I think, um, like women who experience this in some way, men experience a lot of stereotypes, um, that exist in culture and from our families and from our experience and very often from ourselves of what we should be, of what we should look like. And those stereotypes include being strong, being, um, uh, even physically being muscular, being cool, being well-spoken. And so to admit that there's something that's not together, that they're to, uh, to look at the broken parts of our lives feels inherently unmanly. Now it's not, um, but to be vulnerable is very scary. Uh, and it's not an easy thing. And especially men who have been vulnerable before and been burned by opening up, uh, it makes it even harder. But I think there's so many pictures of what a man should be. There's so many opinions and blogs and movies and comic books of what a man should look like. We have this in our mind. I should look like that. And what that looks like is I don't have problems. And if I do, I fix them myself. Um, and I think that's the thing that have led men to being isolated in their brokenness, which only compounds a brokenness. It makes it so hard for men to get help for, to open up to the right people. But, you know, I was uh, in L.A. last year when I was living there. There was this beautiful group um, led by a man named Stephen Luff. Um, and, and he, for years and years, I think about a decade now, he has these people into this small room in a house in Hollywood, um, a bunch of men. We all sit around a table and he has this page he passes around to each of us. And there's about uh, five or ten questions on there. And you start with, hello, my name is Nathan. And you move to all these very deep questions that probe kind of the interior mind and heart of a man. And it's scary. I mean, you have, you know, 10 or 15 men and they're all looking at you and you're opening up, answering these questions, revealing the darkest, hardest parts of yourself, your week, your year, your life. Um, But when you pass it to another man and you hear him do the same, there's suddenly uh, a click and you want to support him and you realize that he wants to support you. And so I think for this to be um, at least begin to be solved, it takes men being brave enough to be vulnerable. Because when you see someone else do it, it empowers you to be able to do it. And you see that this isn't a lack of strength. In fact, it takes a lot of strength to be vulnerable. Um, but I think that's a lot of the reason why men struggle with this, because they don't have any examples of men being vulnerable and, and dealing with their brokenness and owning up and getting help. And uh, they see a lot of men who are trying to do it on their own or pretend they don't have any problems at all. Uh, what happens when men don't face the truth and find healing? Yeah, well, I, can t- I, I can't speak for every man, but I can speak for myself and the times in my life when I have um, 
either not been brave enough to be vulnerable with someone else or just not wanted to own up to the destructive things in my life or maybe even justified them and haven't sought help. Um, I haven't sought connection with someone who wants to see me whole. Um, it gets worse. And I, I guess that's a very simple answer, but that darkness you're feeling and the things you do to cope with that darkness puts you into deeper darkness and further and further away from who you were meant to be. Um, and I think, you know, the whole point of this book is that if we believe in a creator, we believe that he designed us with intention. Every little thing, he designed men with intention. And the further we walk away from that um, create uh, the intended design, the further we're going to see uh, what the quote-unquote toxic things um, uh, of men played out in the world. And all these things are, are natural. I mean, men are, uh, were made to be um, strong and to stand up and to believe in things and to fix and help. But a lot of times what you see that turning into is um, power to abuse someone else, to uh, to to greedily uh, take advantage of the weak. And we see this play out over and over again when people want to be the king of their own heart and not look at the things inside of themselves. Um, they, they continue compounding this brokenness over and over again. Um, and it gets worse and worse and worse the further we walk away from the design uh, we were made to live in and, and humble ourselves and say we need help to get there. Hmm. I just, I wonder how, and I know that you had such a very loving, you said very intuitive family that helped you walk through these things. I, I think that that's rare. (laughs) Um, yeah. And so I'm just thinking of so many husbands out there, brothers, boyfriends, friends, um, who are struggling with these things and feel like they don't have a safe person to open up to, or wouldn't even know how to begin. How can we, as the girls and women in the lives of the boys and men, we know, how can we encourage them? Because one of the things that, um, you know, we tend, I don't want to make a blanket statement here, but I do get women who will write me and say like, like, why won't my husband just get help? Like, why won't he just deal with this? Like, you know, it's, it's very frustrating. And so what, what I have done and what I've had friends, you know, they'll struggle with not like nagging their husband or criticizing their husband or like pushing him when he's not ready. And and I know over the years, I personally have had to learn to just let it go, like, and just trust God, like with the, with what you say about process. Um, but because we are, we're all in process. Right. And like you said, um, but how can we encourage the men in our lives to feel safe enough to face their weakness, frailty, failures, brokenness, so that they can get healing? What can we do? Is there anything? Absolutely. No, I mean, the the women in my life have been um, some of the, the, the strong and healthy women in my life, I mean, some of the conduits towards me getting the help I need to um, and I am incredibly grateful that I've had supportive, loving women in my life. I think one of the, I think there's a couple things that I would say is understand that uh, not again, not a blanket statement. Very often, men are dealing with different things than perhaps um, you girls are, and even when they are dealing with the same things, they're reacting to it in a different way. Because uh, very often I see the world differently than my mother or fiance or sisters do. And it's not a wrong thing um, or a right thing. It's just what's a lot of the makeup in men and women is different. And that's beautiful, that design. Um, but also I'd say don't punish vulnerability. That's good. Um, and, I, and I'm not saying that women do this, but I've, I've seen it before. It's if you're 
man or your person is choosing to be vulnerable with you, don't make them feel bad about that or, or, um, or guilty or weak or small because of it. Embrace it, open up and, and learn how to lovingly pull out even more because if there's a safe space, even a small one for men to be vulnerable, um, and they choose to take that choice to do that, um, reward that, uh, allow more space. Cause I think that just that little space can open up more space for him getting healing in other areas of his life. But I, I would say to anyone, man or woman, don't punish vulnerability of someone you love when they open up to you. Yeah. And let's, let's bring that into the dirt with an example. What would it look like for someone to punish vulnerability? Are you saying like, if a man cries or opens up about something and we talk me through that, what would be punished? What would punishing vulnerability look like? Well, I think there's a classic one, and very often men do this to each other. It's the the real men don't cry um, mm-hmm. trope, and and I think we've all either heard that or maybe we've even said it um, to ourselves or to other people. And I and it's you know kind of a funny thing on the surface, but I think there's um, darker implications beneath the surface. And what they're really saying is real men don't have uh, vulnerabilities, and that's just. Uh, not true, simply not true. We're human. We have brokenness. We have uh, things that are hard for us. Um, so uh, I, I think that's a clear example of what I see often in culture. But even as a um, uh, as one that's more interpersonal, you know, there have been times when I open up to someone and say, I'm really depressed. I don't want to mm. get out of bed. I'm struggling with obsessive thoughts all the time. Um, I don't really feel God. I am doubting my ability. And I will hear something like, well, just buck up. Don't be a, don't be a wimp about it. And I've heard that. Um, mm-hmm. from, and what it caused me to do is shut down. Well, yeah. now I have to pretend in front of this person. Now I don't have a safe place to explore and heal from this brokenness. So I have to push this brokenness down um, and ignore it and just put on a face of pretending. Uh, so I think, I think a lot of Men and people in general have experienced these kind of things. The buck up, pull yourself up by bootstraps, don't be weak, don't be a, a, a weakling or whatever it is. Um, don't cry, be a brave little soldier. Those kind of things um, that cause men to push this brokenness down. Again, it compounds and will come out in very unhealthy, destructive ways for both themselves and the world around them. Yeah, I think that is so, so good. And I was thinking about uh, two examples when you were talking, um, that I have done with my own husband, um, poor examples, don't do this, you guys, or repent if you do. (laughs) Um, but I even just really recently, my husband was sharing, um, he was sharing something with me and, uh, about how he was viewing God. And it was really vulnerable for him to share this with me. And in my, I was self-righteous, quite frankly. And I was like, I don't know how you can view God like that. And I was just like, Hmm. you know, I I just felt so irritated. And (laughs) of course, as God does, you know, he convicts you. And then later I was, you know, reading something and and she was talking about how Christians sometimes do this false positivity thing and we forget <laughs> that um, it's okay to, you know, say things about God when you're processing or you're sad or you're lamenting. I mean, my gosh, look at the Psalms. I just wrote a Bible study on Psalm 40 and, you know, I can talk a lot about it. But boy, when it's the person sitting next to you, it's it can be really difficult. And I learned, I mean, I realized like, oh my gosh, I wasn't listening. Like I was not just letting him lament 
And mm. of course, what's he going to do? Well, because I have heard him say things like, just forget it. I won't, I'm not gonna, I, like, I don't, I won't talk about it. I've said that. That's a guy thing. Just forget it. doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, that's punishing vulnerability. Mm. Like even in that, like, instead of just letting somebody lament and comforting them through it, um, I think that's really important. And then, and then another thing I thought of is, um, years ago, um, I don't know if you're familiar with John Lynch, not the football player, but the pastor author, <laughs> if you're not, you must I'm not, need I'm not. to. Okay. Well, you need to go Google John Lynch, two roads and watch that talk. And then I want to hear what okay. you think about it. Anyway, he's one of my f- favorites. I was able to have him on the podcast a few months ago. And when I watch that two roads talk, it just reminds me of a truth I already know, which we are all sinners. But sometimes in today's culture, we don't let people uh, sin, meaning we expect everybody to like never mess up mm. or never have a sin issue or never have a problem worth fighting through. Instead, it's like I'm washing my. You became a Christian. Why are you still right. sinning? Yeah, I felt yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. also, like if you sin, I'm washing my hands of you. Right. And so instead of like, for example, in a marriage, like I remind myself, not only am I a sinner, but I'm married (laughs) to a sinner. So for me to think he's not going to sin Mm. is dumb and ungracious. And so what I learned and John Lynch really helped with this through some of his messages is just when he finally confesses something to me, he's not proud of it. He's not you know, he's filled with shame. He struggled, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is. And then for me to say like, not it's okay, but to go, I will love you through this. Like we will fight this together because I love you and I sin too. And we are in this together. Like we are a team and I'm not talking about some horrible, egregious sin. We're like, Mm -hmm. get the heck out. Cause you know, but just that, like we are not perfect people on this earth. We're perfect according to heaven because of Jesus, but we're certainly not perfect here. And so when somebody confesses sin, especially in a marriage or an intimate relationship, um, I love that line. Don't punish vulnerability, man. That's easy to say, uh, but really hard to do. It is. And it's, it's, it's something that I think, um, Jesus, didn't do. And that's why I don't want to do it. And of course I've been guilty of this. Um, but it's something every time someone was vulnerable with Jesus, he met them. Uh, he met them. He, he connected with him, opened, he created more space for them to be vulnerable with him. And even his own example is Jesus was the man who wept. My, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is the smallest one because it reminds me that Jesus was vulnerable and human while being God, but his friend died and he said, Jesus wept. And that shows you the beauty yes. of being vulnerable, that even the creator of this entire cosmos was vulnerable when he was sad mm. and that he stepped in that sadness with us. So when someone's vulnerable, they're asked, they're inviting you into their dark places. They're a little kid who has monsters under the bed and they're ashamed to admit they're scared of the monsters. Yes. Saying, you come in here and sit with me. Will you come be in my darkness and pain? And that's mm. what um, Jesus does for us and asks us to do with others. Yes. Yes. And that is why also I love the term long suffering instead of patience. Mm. I mean, same thing, right? But long suffering for me feels more like true <laughs> to what it is Absolutely. because you're being long suffering with somebody. And you can tell I'm coming from a place of somebody who's been, I've been married almost 16 years. And when you're in an intimate marriage relationship, particularly 
one. I know you're talking about everybody, but um, the day in and day out, it's very difficult to continue to not punish vulnerability. Mm. Man, that is a good word, Nathan. I am just going to cling to that. And uh, with that, I'm going to say thank you so much for being on the show today. And do you have any just last words of advice? Let's, let's put it this way. I know I've got, I've got youth group girls who listen. I've got 20 year olds who listen. I have, you know, older women who listen. It's mostly women, some men, but I want you to talk to the moms right now who have teen boys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is so broad, but what advice, Nathan, do you have for a mom who is seeing some things in her teen boy, maybe some mental illness, some, some things, I don't know how, how can she love him? Well, what, what are some things maybe your mom did well with you or just what encouragement can you give? You know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm like racking my brain for, I want to have this really good theological answer. And I want to have, you know, this really, <laughs> really eloquent, uh, comeback that no one's ever thought of this before. But if I'm honest with myself, it's, it's very simple things and it's so cliche. Um, but it, it's, it's loving them like Jesus loves us. He loves us not as we should be, um, but as we are. It's creating space for them to be vulnerable, for them to talk, for them to express without being punished for it. And it's walking into their darkness and hurt and worry and doubts. And that's going to happen for kids with mental illness or without we're, we live in a broken world with darkness. And everyone needs someone to walk in it with them like God walks in the darkness with us. Yes. Yes. And first of all, that is deeply theological. Second of all, that does go for girls too. I shouldn't have just said boys actually, because that really does go for girls as well. And, um, and even again, going back to that, don't punish vulnerability. Like that's for our kids too. Mm. Like when they're scared or they open up or they confess something to not rail on them, but to listen and yeah, deal with it accordingly. But, um, but not punish that willingness to be open and tell the truth. That's so good. That's so good. Nathan, thank you so much for being on here. Tell us, tell everybody where they can find you and your movies or whatever. Well, thank you so much for having me. I always love talking with you. Um, So you can find uh, my website, NathanClarkson.me. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram. You can find my movies and books on Amazon and IMDb and all the places. But if you just Google my name, you'll find enough, uh, more than enough of me than you'll ever want. Awesome. And if they go to your site, do you have a newsletter or anything they could sign up for so that when your new book comes out that they don't miss it? You know, I am dedicated to putting out new blogs on my website and there is a place you can sign up for it and you'll get notifications. And you can also just follow me on Instagram and Facebook and I'll make sure to put everything there as well. Perfect. And I will put all of those links in the show note. And when your book comes out, we'll have to have you back on. So thanks again, Nathan. Thanks so much, Sarah May. Thank you for listening to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Reviews are how people know if they should listen or not. So please, if you like the show, take a minute and give it a review. Thank you so much. If you want to know more, check out sarahmay.com forward slash the Complicated Heart Podcast. See you next time.